Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. We're going to be looking at Matthew 26, verses 30 through 35 today. There was a World War II movie that I watched a number of years ago that had a scene in it that I have never forgot. The American soldiers were in a, a big fight with the Germans in an abandoned town, and several American soldiers were, were stationed in a building firing down on the Germans. Well, several Germans were able to make their way into the building and attack the Americans, and one German died, well, excuse me, one American died, and the other got into a close quarters fight with the German. The American was beginning to lose the fight and was crying out for help when another American soldier started to come up the stairs into the building. And as an audience member, I expected that soldier to save his fellow American, to burst in and rescue his companion. But that American on the stairs was so gripped by fear that he would not go in to save his fellow soldier. He was so afraid that he just stood there and did nothing. The coward left his companion to die. Now I remember how angry I was when I saw that scene. You don't abandon your friend in their time of need. You don't leave your companion to die alone. You don't ignore them. You don't be a coward. This shows those actions show a lack of love for your companion. It shows a lack of commitment to your friendship. It shows selfishness and a lack of true care for your buddy. But as the years went by and I thought about that scene, and as I grew older, I began to see that the struggle of that soldier is a struggle that we all sometimes face. We all struggle with fear and a lack of true commitment and love. We all struggle with selfishness and cowardice. And that is something that we're going to see our Lord Jesus address today. And as we look at Jesus' prediction about the cowardice of his disciples, we will see our own struggles with sin, our need to be humble, and to look to our sovereign God for hope. So please look with me at Matthew 26, verses 30 through 35, as we examine more life-transforming truth. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. 
For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Lord God, I thank you for allowing us this opportunity to to look at your word, to examine it, to observe it, to try to figure out how to interpret it, and then to take it and apply it to our lives. I ask God that as we move through this text that you would help me to be accurate and to be clear, that you'd help everyone here to stay focused, and that we would all be changed as we examine this together today. In your name we pray. Amen. One of the great things about preaching through a book, verse by verse, is that you cannot skip anything. Now, some passages in Scripture are easier and and more exciting to, to preach on. Some passages just lend themselves to powerful sermons. Some are just more preachable. And then there are other passages that just don't seem as as interesting or as deep or as exciting. But if you're preaching through a book, you still got to preach those passages. And that is a very good thing. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, the Apostle Paul said, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Every single passage of Scripture is breathed out by God, and therefore every single passage is meant to bring life-transforming truth that can change our lives. And the benefit of preaching through books is that you don't skip any of that life-transforming truth. When I first looked at the passage we're going to go over today, I didn't think that there was enough there for a full sermon, and I admit I kind of wanted to skip it. The more I studied it, the more truth I saw, and the more I was thankful that our main diet at church comes from walking through every single verse of a book. So I'm very excited about diving into this passage. And if you'd like to better follow along, I would encourage you to look at the outline on the back of your bulletin. <clears throat> we are going to look at the place in verse 30, the prophecy in verses 31 through 32, and the protest in verses 33 through 35. And then we're going to end by examining the practical ways this truth should affect our lives. So we start with the place. Matthew 26, verse 30 again says, 
And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Jesus has been eating the Jewish Passover feast with his disciples. Jesus has prophesied that one of his disciples will betray him and has set up a a symbolic meal. He has instituted the Lord's Supper to help the disciples think about how he would give up his body and spill his blood so that his people would be forgiven. How he would die as a sacrifice for his people. And now, at the end of their Passover meal, they sung a hymn. This was not mandated in Scripture, but had become a a very common tradition. And And often, Psalm 118 would be sung at the end of this Passover meal, singing praises to God is something that our Lord Jesus Christ participated in. Which means that singing praises to God is a good and a right thing to do. And one of the ways that we can all follow the example of the perfect Lord Jesus is to join Louis in belting out songs that proclaim the greatness of God. Well, it says, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives was, was not a new place for the disciples. In, in fact, it was a pretty normal place for them to go. Luke twenty two thirty nine 39 says that it was Jesus' custom to take his disciples to the Mount of Olives. And back in Matthew 24, when Jesus began to give his disciples private instruction about the end times period, It says in verse 3 that Jesus did this instruction on the Mount of Olives. This would have been a peaceful and secluded place for Jesus to go as as he would go there to get away from the crowds, to be alone with his disciples, and to rest. In fact, Luke 21, 37 says that Jesus and his disciples would sleep on this mountain. The Mount of Olives is a, is a high ridge east of Jerusalem. And, and as Acts 1.12 says that it was a Sabbath day's journey from Jerusalem, Jerusalem, it would have been a perfect spot for Jesus and his disciples. Close enough to, to easily travel to and from Jerusalem and yet far enough away to be able to get away and, and rest. This is the setting Matthew wants to be on our minds as Matthew begins to recount another prophecy that Jesus spoke. And just like his last prediction, this one would deeply disturb the disciples. We see the prophecy, the prophecy in Matthew 26, verses 31 through 32, where it says, Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. (coughs) The first portion of this prophecy would have been quite shocking to the disciples. The close 
intimacy of the Lord's Supper was about to be replaced with disloyalty and cowardice. Jesus told the disciples, you will all fall away because of me this night. Every single one of the disciples, all of them would fall away. They would all abandon him. And Jesus said they would fall away because of me, meaning on account of me. They would not want to be associated with him, so they would all desert him. And this desertion was not very far in the future, as Jesus said they would fall away this night. This prophecy would be fulfilled in just a matter of hours. Jesus' prophecies were not like the vague, generalized prophecies of the famous 16th century astrologer Nostradamus. Nostradamus wrote prophecies that were so ambiguous and obscure, you could apply them to almost anything. But Jesus gave a very specific, time-sensitive prophecy that every single one of his disciples would abandon him that very night. And not only did Jesus prophesy this, but he also said it was the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. For he says in the second half of verse 31, For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. <coughs> now this is a quotation from Zechariah 13.7, a prophecy that was first focused on the nation of Israel and how they would be unfaithful and fall away from God. But Jesus says that the ultimate fulfillment of this Old Testament scripture was about to occur. Jesus, the, the spiritual leader, the shepherd of his disciples, would be struck. And his disciples, his sheep, would be scattered. Jesus... And the disciples would bring this Old Testament prophecy to its fullest completion. Jesus would be rejected and killed and his followers would abandon him. This again shows that Jesus going to the cross to die for his people was not an accident of history. It wasn't a plan B. Jesus being rejected and killed was always a part of God's plan. And that can be seen all the way back in the Old Testament scriptures. And notice that the scripture being quoted says, I will strike the shepherd. The I in Zechariah 13 is God. God is the one who will strike the shepherd. God is the one who would sovereignly be in control of Jesus being murdered on a cross. A terrible thing was about to happen. Jesus would be killed and his followers would abandon him. And yet that terrible thing was all a part of the sovereign plan of God. People would do evil. And yet God would use that evil for good.
Creator was still in complete control of His creation. It should give believers great comfort to know that even the evil that goes on in this world is not outside God's control and that God will use evil to bring about His ultimate good purposes. But the disciples hearing that their shepherd would be struck and that they would abandon their master, that they would fall away, would have been a stunningly depressing thing for them to contemplate. So Jesus would give the disciples some room for hope. As he said in verse 32, But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. The shepherd who was struck would not stay dead. He would be raised up. Jesus would defeat death by rising from the grave. And when he was raised up, he would not abandon the disciples who had deserted him. Instead, he would go before them to Galilee. He would go ahead of them into Galilee. This implies that Jesus would meet up with his disciples again. After they had fallen away, Jesus would welcome them back together. And when we get to Matthew 28, we will see this prophecy being fulfilled as Jesus rises from the dead, tells the women to direct the disciples to Galilee, and then meets up with these followers who had failed him. Jesus is making it clear that there is still hope for these disciples. They would fail him. They would fall away. But he would conquer death and would restore his fallen disciples. They would return to him and he would welcome them back. Unfortunately, rather than being humbled by their upcoming failure, and rather than being filled with hope from Jesus' promise, the disciples instead spoke forth their proud objections. Which brings us to our next point, the protest. The protest. Matthew 33-35 says, Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. At first glance, we may assume that the disciples, though wrong in their protests, were still voicing their genuine desire to stay faithful to Jesus and showing their sincere love for Jesus. But I believe this passage shows us more about the disciples' pride than about their love. Their master 
the powerful preacher, the miracle worker, the promised Christ, the Savior King, had just spoke a prophecy. The Son of God had made a divine prediction, and the disciples' response was basically to say, you're wrong, Jesus. In essence, they said, I'm sorry, Son of God, but you don't truly understand the Scriptures, and you are confused and in error about the predetermined plan of your Father God. And just like in the past, the most vocal of the twelve disciples was Peter. Verse 33 says, Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. This was a reckless boast. Peter is declaring his absolute confidence in his own personal faithfulness. He is saying that he is the most loyal out of all the disciples. He is the truest of the true. Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Rather than humbly believe the prophecy of the Son of God, Peter proudly protests and proclaims his own reliability. But while Peter is objecting, Jesus gives another prophecy. A prophecy specifically geared to humble Peter and a prophecy that shows the perfect knowledge of God. Jesus says to Peter in verse 34, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. I like to listen to theological debates sometimes during the week. And I was listening to one this week where an evangelical Christian was debating an open theist, a person who believes that God can't know the future, that God does not have perfect knowledge of what is going to happen. And the Christian brought up this text to show the truth that God does indeed know the future. But the open theists claim that this was just a good guess by Jesus and that Jesus could have been wrong. But that's not what we see presented in these verses. Jesus does not say, this may happen or this probably will happen. No, Jesus says, truly I tell you, this very night... Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Jesus speaks with authority as he shows his divine, supernatural, perfect knowledge of the future. He gives a very specific prediction and states with certainty that it will happen. Jesus knew exactly what Peter would do and exactly when he would do it. Before the rooster crowed, Peter would deny Jesus three times. He would disown his own master, claiming that he had no association with Jesus. This divine prophecy was a rebuke 
to Peter's pride, and it should have humbled him. But instead, we see that Peter's self-confidence does not waver, even in the face of the repeated prophecies of the Son of God. For Peter says in verse 35, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Peter was unwilling to recognize his own weakness, unwilling to see his pride as he continued to proclaim his firm loyalty that he would die before denying Jesus. But lest we think that only Peter was guilty of this arrogance, the end of verse 35 says, And all the disciples said the same. Peter may have been quicker and louder in his prideful protests, but all the disciples joined in saying that they would not fail Jesus and that Jesus' prophecy was wrong. None of the disciples was willing to admit their vulnerability to sin. And none of the disciples was willing to humble themselves. But we know from the rest of Matthew that they all were humbled as Jesus' prophecy came true. They all failed their master. They all sinned grievously. They all fell away and were unfaithful. But we also know from the rest of Matthew that Jesus' prophecy about his, his resurrection, his victory over death, and his meeting his disciples in Galilee, his welcoming them back into fellowship, that also happened. The disciples would sin and fail, but Jesus would sovereignly succeed in accomplishing his mission and would show forgiveness to those who had left him. And those truths should have an effect on us today. <coughs> Which leads us to our final point, the practical The practical. Biblical truth is not for us to just sit back and admire, but is meant to change our lives. So here are two practical ways to apply the truth that we've just seen in this passage today. Number one, believers struggle with sin, so be humble. Believers struggle with sin, so be humble. Judas was a false disciple, a fake believer. Judas betrayed Jesus and was completely unrepentant. Judas fell away totally, completely, and finally, and was eternally condemned. But the rest of the disciples were true believers. They had truly committed themselves to Jesus as their Savior and King. They had been eternally saved, but they still messed up. And they messed up big. And their problem was not just their eventual abandonment of Jesus. Their selfish cowardice was not the only problem they had. 
They also were completely unwilling to recognize their own weakness. They, they would not believe Jesus' prophecy because of their pride. But their eventual failure would be a massively humbling experience for all of them. And that is a very good thing. Humility is essential and is necessary for spiritual growth. You cannot grow in your relationship with God unless you are becoming more humble. James 4 verse 6 says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The disciples needed to have an honest awareness of their own spiritual weakness. They needed to recognize how much they needed Jesus, that they were spiritually bankrupt without his help. All of us here need to admit that we are weak. That none of us on our own are spiritual giants of moral perfection. We need to recognize that all believers still struggle with some sin and all of us need to humble ourselves. And as we put less trust in ourselves, we need to place our hope in the gracious and sovereign God of the Bible. Which brings us to our next point. Number two, God is mercifully sovereign, so have hope. God is mercifully sovereign, so have hope. (coughs) When I told my wife about this point of application, she made the remark that I have talked about God's sovereignty in all three of my last sermons in Matthew. And the reason I keep bringing it up is because Jesus keeps bringing it up. Over and over again, we see that the worst evil that has ever happened in this world, the murder of the perfect Son of God, was an evil that was sovereignly ordained by God. God predetermined to use the greatest evil to accomplish the greatest good. Jesus was going to be executed on a cross and abandoned by his followers. The shepherd was going to be struck and his sheep scattered. But Jesus' prophecy and the Old Testament scriptures show that Jesus knew all of that before it would happen. He was not unaware of of the future failure of his followers or his upcoming death on a cross. He was not unaware because it was all part of the Creator God's sovereign plan. Jesus' disciples would disappoint and he would die. But his death would pay for the sins of all who would believe. His sacrifice would bring forgiveness and salvation to his people. 
And God's predetermined plan also included Jesus' defeat of death as he rose from the dead. And it included Jesus' restoration and forgiveness of his disciples as he welcomed them back into fellowship with him in Galilee. All of this means that God is in complete control over all the craziness that is happening in this life. The Creator is not a a victim of the chaos of this world. God has not lost His throne. God is still sovereign. His plans will come to pass. And although we will experience much evil in this world, God has an absolutely perfect track record of using evil for the ultimate spiritual good of his people. And that should give us hope. And God's sovereign mercy towards the disciples who abandoned him should also give us hope. For God does not just write off true believers when we struggle with sin. And if we return to him, he is willing to continue to grant us forgiveness and transformation. As it says in 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We have a God who is in complete control. But that ruling God is also full of kindness and grace. So have hope in our mercifully sovereign God. Lord God, we we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are not weak but are strong. We thank you that you are in control, that you still sit on your throne, that you are sovereign over all, and that in your love and in your mercy, you sovereignly chose to send your son to die, to be the sacrifice for our sins. We thank you for that, Lord God. We thank you for your your sovereignty and your mercy. And I ask God that we would look to you as a sovereign and merciful God and trust in you and not put our trust in ourselves. That we would all be willing to humble ourselves. That we would recognize that on our own we are very, very weak. That we struggle with sin that we struggle with pride, that we too often give in to to selfishness and cowardice, that you'd help us, God, to, to look to you rather than to ourselves, knowing that you are a forgiving God, that you are a restoring God, that you are a God who cleanses and continues to, to transform your people. We thank you so much for that, God. In your son's name we pray. Amen.